Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. My name is Andy Boyd. My guest on today's program is Cassine Gaines, author of the book Footnotes, The Black Artists Who Rewrote the Rules of the Great White Way. Cassine, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to be on. So your book is, is, a, is a lot of things, but I think broadly speaking, it's sort of a cultural history of the show Shuffle Along. What made you want to write a book about Shuffle Along and what made you want to do that now? So I actually saw George C. Wolfe's 2016 Shuffle Along um, the day before it closed, and, <laughs> which, is, which is interesting. I didn't know it was going to be the day before it closed, as I'm sure uh, a lot of listeners know it closed quite pre- prematurely. Um, but I was actually fortunate enough to be a part of a talkback. I was in the audience for a talkback after the show, and I remember there being just sort of this funereal sense in the music box theater after this show in fact even the um like the merch stands had like like just like triple xl shirts like they barely had anything left you know like they were just sort of like the dregs of everything yeah, yeah. um and i remember you know um specifically it was brian stokes mitchell who said that he felt like as as happy as he was to have been a part of this show he couldn't help but feel like Sissel and Blake and Miller and Lyles, the the four creators of Shuffle Along, were sort of dying another death by having the 2016 show only play what would be 100 performances. And so when I got home, I just sort of was thinking about, I guess, the juxtaposition of this exciting, jubilant show and that I just witnessed, and then this talk back afterwards and um, I started Googling around like, you know, I think a lot of people do when they're in, you know, when they see a piece of art they really enjoyed. And I think the things that really hooked me were, number one, learning that Josephine Baker really got her start in Shuffle Along when she was just a teenager. And she ended up becoming the highest paid chorus girl in America as a result of being in this show. And also that Langston Hughes chose to go to Columbia University in New York because he wanted to see Shuffle Along. And then when he got (laughs) here, he saw Shuffle Along countless times um, up in the balcony. And so I think those two things sort of really made me um, take even more notice than I did having watched the show for two and a half hours and just made me say, you know, as a writer, I felt this sort of responsibility, frankly, to help preserve this history. And as a, you know, Black man who loves theater, I couldn't help but feel like there was something important about telling this story and really trying to draw a line between what transpired 100 years ago and some of the issues and conversations that are still taking place in the theater industry and in America at large. Right. One of the kind of conversations that I think is mostly kind of beneath the surface in your book is the idea of kind of what makes a, a, a piece of musical theater canonical and kind of what mm-hmm. gets it that kind of uh, uh, placement. And you, you point out that there are like a, a lot of shows that are written by white creators that are, you know, very racist or sexist or, you know, have sort of, 
lazy jokes about gypsies or, or something like that. And yet we, we sort of think, well, but we can appreciate them for their craft. And yet somehow that generosity is not extended to, you know, Cecil and Blake or to, you know, countless other black creators. And, and, you know, one of the things that's amazing about this book is that you, you realize that Shuffle Along was not the only one. It was not the only show that was, you know, created by black creators on Broadway in the 1920s. And yet we remember Showboat. Um, was that, was that part of your agenda here to kind of, you know, make a case for Shuffle Along being kind of considered one of the canonical early American musicals? Absolutely. And I'll say, I don't know if that was something that was on my mind when I set out to write this book, but the more I researched and the more I learned, the more, um, exacerbated, frankly, the injustice felt to me you know, that that um, you you can almost understand it if Shuffle Along had been this outlier, but it makes it seem far more sinister in a sense um, and contrived that there were, you know, uh, nine other productions, all Black productions between 1921 and 1924 that just d- have not been remembered, you know? And so I I really felt like there was such a, you know, I, the the canon is 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 a curious thing. You know, I'm I'm an English teacher, um, in addition to to a writer, and this is a conversation that we have in classrooms all the time. You know, is To Kill a Mockingbird one of the best books to have ever been written, or did someone read it and then it it sort of spread like wildfire across the nation, and then we just have this inability to detach ourselves from that as a piece of canonical literature. I mean, I, I think that's really the question. And I think it um, begs the question of sort of who has the ability to put things into the canon, Mm -hmm. you know, who has the ability to say what is important what is valid? What is true theater? You know, I, I know there are lots of people in musical theater programs across the nation that are still taught that a show like Rent is not, you know, true musical theater. Um, who gets to determine that and based on what standards? And I think that that's one of the things that certainly I did want to raise as a part of the conversation. But you also acknowledge in the book that there are things about Shuffle Along that would make it a a kind of awkward viewing experience for a 21st century audience. There's, even though it was created by Black creators, there's a a reliance on racial stereotypes coming out of the minstrel tradition that that maybe makes it uh, a a little less of a side-splitting, you know, comedy than it it would have been in 1921. Yeah, and I I agree. I mean, there are certainly... um seriously problematic aspects of Shuffle Along. I mean, you know, I think the the elephant in the room is that uh, Miller and Lyles were blackface comedians. And I think um, if you just want evidence of how problematic that would be for modern audiences, you can see that, you know, George C. Wolfe, I think, had uh, Billy Porter and Brian Stokes Mitchell in blackface for, you know, maybe all of 90 seconds in the 2016 production. You know? mm-hmm. um, and so I, I think that certainly that's, that's, um, that complicates the history. I should also mention that Black audiences really 
were at the forefront of wanting to bury Shuffle Along um, mm. as early as the 1950s, even, because as the civil rights movement was picking up, um, there were certainly performers, not just performers, just members of the Black community who said these are, you know, Shuffle Along has bad representations of Black folks and we don't want for white audiences to see that and feel like it is okay and that we are okay with it. Um, It reminds me certainly growing up in the 80s and 90s, there were lots of conversations about things like um, you see, you know, Hattie McDaniel and Gone with the Wind, that's still an ongoing conversation. Um, You know, Billy Thomas, who played Buckwheat in the Little Rascals comedies, you know, Step and Fetch It. Um, There are all these sort of figures that were watershed moments for representation, but they were really complicated and antiquated versions of Black folks. So they were caricatures. Mm -hmm. Um, But I, I will say, though, I think that when you when you just eliminate um, all of those performers and their work, I I actually think that you are making a really almost problematic admission about what you think of those performers. You know, Hattie McDaniel, who was the first Black woman to win an Oscar, she was acting. She was not anyone's mammy. She was not living in the Old South. She was not, you know, she was doing a performance. And it almost seems like, when you cast out actors that played to those stereotypes, um, horribly so, that you're almost kind of conceding that they that they were those stereotypes right. in a way. You know, um, so I, I I think that with Shuffle Along, it is complicated, it is problematic, but I also can't help but wonder. If it were the same exact show, but the writers had been white or the creators had been white, would it go down differently with white audiences? Would it be just cast aside or would it be something that is sort of, um, as you alluded to earlier, revered as, well, that's a relic of its time. And you have to sort of be understanding of that. I I think that's a a fair question. Yeah, I'd love to kind of, delve a little bit more into that relic of its time question, because one of the things that I found a bit surprising in the book was how many, um, how many kind of black intellectuals really rallied to the show that you have W.E.B. Du Bois writing very favorably about the show. And as a sort of great example of, you know, black creativity. Um, I, I feel like we often think of the Harlem Renaissance period as being, as being very polarized between a kind of like mm. black elite and, and, a, and a sort of black popular culture that are kind mm. of, you know, antagonistic to each other. So I was really surprised to see, you know, the, the kind of highest levels of, of Black intellectual life really uh, champion this show. Why, why do you think that was? I think because it was this way of gaining entry into what was previously all white spaces and that Shuffle Along really legitimized Black culture for a lot of white audiences. Um, you know, while we've been talking about Miller and Lyles, you know, we have not been speaking um, so much just yet about Cecil and Blake, who were kind of the antithesis of Miller and Lyles. Um, they were uh, musicians that were bringing jazz and ragtime to the, uh, you know, to the legitimate stage and not just jazz and ragtime, but I should also note there are songs like Love Will Find a Way, which was 
a ballad um, really cut out of the traditional, you know, great American songbook, you know, out of the European tradition. And so it was sort of a way of providing the blackface and sort of racial jokes were comfortable and comforting to those in the audience who needed that security blanket, frankly. And yet when they were in the theater laughing at those jokes, they were also being exposed to amazing black woman dancers for the first time. Um, An array of black women in not all shades necessarily, um, but, you know, black women who were tap dancing and singing and, um, you know, getting to play comedy and getting to play romantic characters that were not uh, caricatures. And they were able to see black folks in tuxedos like Cicel and Blake and the Harmony Kings that performed. And so, um, I think Frederick Douglass really had the best take on this when he was referring to blackface comedian, black actors in blackface specifically, um, long before Shuffle Along opened, where, where Frederick Douglass hated blackface. He thought it was a horrible practice and he thought that it was, you know, a, a great stain on the nation. But he also said that he felt like there was something to be gained anytime white people had the opportunity to see talented Black people. Mm -hmm. And even if that was under burnt cork and red lipstick, there was still something to be gained by that. Um, It was still progress in a sense. And it's, it's a little bit hard in 2021 to sort of um, maybe agree with that sentiment, but you know, if you take yourself back in time, 100, 150 years, I think, you know, you can sort of empathize with that position. Yeah. I I recently read the book When Harlem Was in Vogue. And one of the main arguments of that book is basically that the, the kind of political project of the Harlem Renaissance was a failure, that, that the arts was never going to be a powerful enough tool to kind of break down the gates of prejudice. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you get a little bit of a sense of that with Shuffle Along, that, that people really, you know, wanted this to be a, a kind of transformative moment um, in kind of American race relations. And they kind of felt, well, if they, if they, you know, cheer for us and sing our songs, then, then they can't possibly keep hating us. Do you think that that was um, kind of too much to put on musical theater? Or do you think that that did happen to an extent? Well, I mean, um, I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to pivot too much on the question, but I mean, what immediately is coming to mind is, you know, look at, um, in the Heights, you know, the film and, and what sort of transpired there, you know, I, I think that the, the criticism of, um, colorism and lack of Afro-Latino representation is a legitimate criticism. I also think In the Heights is an incredibly significant film. And I, I will say, I, I feel sad that that film was unable to do what that film should have done. And and I, I lay the blame for that on the filmmakers who just had, you know, at best a blind spot, mm-hmm. you know, to, to that issue. Um, and it failed to sort of fully celebrate and represent the community that it was seeking to celebrate and represent. 
Shuffle Along is really no different. And I, I think certainly um, the four creators felt like they were really ambassadors for the race with this show. But, you know, it's anytime that you're setting out to do that, it's almost an impossible standard. I mean, look at, you know, whether it's Jackie Robinson, look at, you know, I mean, you know, in any field, anyone who is the first always has such an incredible burden. And I think there's a certain naivete that that is at work there because it sort of ignores the systemic factors, the systemic racism that prevents any one event from upending a system, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, know, Oprah Winfrey, Barack Obama, you know, all of these people, you know, all of these super significant, you know, folks don't upend entire systems just by existing and thriving. Um, It's, there's, it's a system for a reason. And I think that that's, um, I, I, I think it's admirable what they, what they did with Shuffle Along, but it was always sort of destined to fail as being a, a long lasting civil rights moment, I think. Right. Right. You need a movement for that. You can't just have, you know, individual success. Right. Yeah. Um, Could you give us a a kind of brief sense of what happens in the show shuffle along? Like what is the, what's the story? You know, you, you would be amazed at, at how rarely I am asked that question. <laughs> so, so, well, we uh, post 20 minutes into our interview before I asked it. So, <laughs> so shuffle along. Um, and this is for those who don't know, shuffle along um, opened on May 23rd, 1921. Um, and it was a show that centered on a three way mayoral race. So there were two, two of the three candidates um, Steve Jenkins and Sam Peck were um, businessmen who both owned a grocery store together. They were friends and business partners, but they were um, unscrupulous folks and they knew that the other one was as well. And so they did not trust each other and they suspect that the other one is stealing from the cash register to fund their campaign. And so they both hire a private detective and in true musical theater, comedic fashion, it's the same private detective mm-hmm. um, who is watching both of them. And so there's that plot and the comedy ensues from there. And then there, the third candidate is a gentleman by the name of Harry Walton, who is admirable and honest and just wants to do the right thing. And so, of course, you know, he loses, at least initially. Um, <laughs> spoiler alert. And um, there's a romantic subplot where he wants to marry um, the kind of the I'll say the the heiress, the kind of princess of Jimtown where um, where they live. And so that's actually where you get the song, I'm Just Wild About Harry, which most people are familiar with. Um, it comes from Shuffle Along, and the Harry is the Harry Walton who is being referred to in that um, in that song. So is this is it sort of taking place in a like fictional all-black town? Yes. Yeah, so it's it's taking place in a fictional all-black town named Jimtown. Um, and it's sort of an antebellum um, town, but, uh, and it's, it's interesting actually, because, you know, we've talked about there being other shows. Um, Jimtown was actually a setting that um, they went back to, Miller and Lyles went back to for several other shows. Um, it was just sort of like a stock 
like like almost like Springfield, you know, it was like just right. like stock location that they used to to set their stories in. Um, so yeah, I think it's also interesting though, as I'm as I'm talking this through, that while you did have um, ragtime and jazz, and certainly the show was very much so set in 1921, it was also kind of set in a, a pre Civil War South, you know, in a, mm-hmm. in a, in terms of setting but not necessarily in terms of plot. Yeah. It also strikes me just hearing that plot summary that like, this is a show where white audiences would have to accept the idea that there could be a black mayor. Right. Exactly. And I think, you know, this is one of the things I really did. I always wanted to do with footnotes was set the show shuffle along in its sort of historical context. You know, one of the things that you had, actually, you know, we're, we're recording this on um, August 19th, 2021. And on August 18th, 1920, women were granted the right to vote. And so not only did you have, um, you know, Black folks voting in Jimtown and being elected mayor in Jimtown, you also had women who were voting and taking, you know, political positions in this show. And so um, you had a flapper character. Um, the flapper really started to rise in prominence in 1920 as well. Um, so you you really had a show that was really speaking to the jazz age in a very significant way. You know, um, when I say it was set in the the old South, it was sort of just um, anachronistically set in the old South. It wasn't that the show was something that ever could have been written in 1860 or anything like that. It was very much so of the present day. Could you give us a sense of kind of what else was going on on Broadway around this time and kind of how this show would have struck audiences in that context? Yes. So you had the, the big show on Broadway at the time was Elsie, um, which was just sort of a standard, you know, musical theater um, production uh, you had obviously, uh, I shouldn't say obviously, but you had Florence Ziegfeld's Follies, which were an annual review. There were other reviews as well in the same style, but but Ziegfeld was the the top drawer. And you know, they were there were book musicals certainly, um, but the big money on Broadway really was rev- was in reviews. And so um, it's also really important, I think, to to note that Broadway was largely dark in May of 1921. Like half the theaters were empty. And the reason was the economy was in tatters, partially because of um, the pandemic of 1918, which by 1921, they had not fully come out of. And, you know, spoiler alert, you know, we seem to be headed in the same direction. Um, So there was that. They were dealing with the aftermath of World War I, um, the prohibition era was in full swing, and um, while I guess I sort of <laughs> my tone suggested that was a positive thing, but it really wasn't because it decimated New York's economy. Um, you know, not being able to tax alcohol and raise money in that way, and so it it really was a unique period where you could have an all black musical succeed in in part because people wanted something new they wanted something novel and just the general state of broadway overall was sort of like 
the same old thing had been done almost for a full decade. You know, there had really not been anything really novel on stage in a long time. And Shuffle Along was an answer to that. Was some of the attraction of Shuffle Along for white audiences the kind of the same impulse that would bring white people to the Cotton Club, the kind of idea of wanting to kind of see black performers in kind of their natural habitat, so Mm -hmm. to speak? Yeah, I I think so. And I, you know, Shuffle Along, um, I write in footnotes, there's a great, um, (laughs) it's funny, you know, when the book is much larger than I expected it to be. I mean, if you, you know, if you, if you've read, I know you've read footnotes, it's, it's, I, I uh, expected to be probably about a hundred pages shorter. I'm not exaggerating <laughs> here, but um, there were just all of these great things that I just felt were so important to telling the story. And one of them is um, this essay that was written by um, someone who was a, a, a Harlem resident who left for a period of time and then came back um, towards the end of the 1920s. And he actually, uh, cr- you know, blamed Shuffle Along for introducing white people to Harlem. You know, it really was the start of slumming expeditions. You know, when the show was over, people would then go uptown and continue to party. And you had, you know, the Cotton Club really didn't become the Cotton Club until about 18 months after Shuffle Along opened, you know, just for a frame of reference here. So there was always this, there has always been in America, this interest in Black culture among white folks. And Shuffle Along was certainly no exception. And in fact, one of the the things that I will say sort of happened, quote unquote, to Shuffle Along was that you had white producers um, hire away the dancers and teach white dancers how to dance in the Shuffle Along style. You had, um, you know, white uh, composers sort of uh, imitating the Shuffle Along style. Now virtually every Broadway score has syncopation in it. I mean, you you can't find a a Broadway score that doesn't have syncopation in it. Um, Shuffle Along was the first time that that happened. And so you started to sort of have, um, yes, white audiences went in large part because they wanted to see something novel. They wanted to see Black folks, you know, in their natural habitat. But also there were really kind of problematic ramifications um to that for those black performers who largely were sort of um cut out of the deal as things started to take off for um musical theater and and it started to change in that way one of the kind of microcosms of that process is the charleston and how Mm -hmm. the charleston kind of circulated through new york during this time it kind of reminds me of the like 1920s version of the harlem shuffle yeah (laughs) could you um could you explain that history a little bit yeah absolutely so the charleston um which actually um came from a show called running wild which was a uh sort of sequel or i'll say follow-up is probably more appropriate um by miller and lyles right after Shuffle Along. So it opened in 1923. And Run Wild um, introduced the Charleston to the world. It was the the music that we all know and the dance that we all know. And that is a dance that, 
emanated out of Black culture, specifically out of Charleston, South Carolina, probably not surprisingly. And the choreographer, um, I should I should make a point of saying um, it was Elida Webb, who is a, a Black woman choreographer in 1923. She saw some kids in Harlem doing this dance and asked them, you know, where, you know, where they had gotten it from. And she, you know, the kids said they got it from Charleston because, you know, they had come up in the great migration. So she, you know, they named it Charleston. They wrote the music. And what was fascinating was almost immediately you had white folks, particularly like the white producer of Runnin' Wild, saying that he invented the Charleston. And you had all of these white folks throughout the 1920s trying to lay claim to having started a dance that, frankly, wasn't even started in 1923. It had come out of this other place. It was a transplant. But that was just sort of a a microcosm, as you said, of the way in which Black creators had to fight for ownership. And frankly, you know, it's still happening today. Look at TikTok. You know, look at all of these dances that sort of get created as whether they're challenges or social media dances, or you mentioned the Harlem Shuffle. You know, oftentimes these things emanate by Black creators and, you know, they get picked up by folks with larger platforms. And then the person who gets sort of credited with starting a movement are these, you know, white creators with larger platforms, not the people who actually uh, originated them. You you alluded to the follow-up to Shuffle Along, and after Shuffle Along, Cecil and Blake and Miller and Lyles kind of had a falling out. Could you explain kind of what happened and why this partnership didn't continue? Yes. Um, so, uh, you know, the show business is hard. <laughs> um, no, so what ended up happening really is um, there were... Shuffle Along was really the best pieces of Cecil and Blake's vaudeville act and Miller and Lyles's um, theatrical career. They had written plays um, before they even got into vaudeville. And so, you know, music, I think, is always kind of a funny thing in a musical because, <laughs> not to, it sounds silly to say, but, um, but, you know, the music is always, I think, kind of revered differently than a book. Yeah. Um, you know, we all are familiar with um, Hamilton's a bad example, but I mean, say Gypsy or West Side Story, you know, or any of these like sort of classic shows um, that are brilliant. The music is always what holds up differently than the book. It, yeah. Part of it is just the commodification of it. You can buy a soundtrack. You can't buy a video of a, of a play, especially prior to, you know, video. <laughs> it's often pretty hard to even find the script of a musical. Right. Yeah, certainly. And so, um, right, sheet music is, is available. And, you know, even back in the 20s, sheet music was available in a way that uh, a book is not. And so Sizzle and Blake were really able to um, capitalize on their success in a way that Miller and Lyles could not. And, you know, egos and and things got into, got into play there. And so they went their own separate way. Um, but what I think is interesting is Running Wild, which had the Charleston, was really criticized for being almost too much comedy and not enough music for a musical comedy. Whereas the Chocolate Dandies, which was the show that Cecil and Blake did, once again on Broadway, after um, Shuffle Along, was kind of criticized for being almost 
too white of a show, hmm. not playing up to stereotypes enough. Um, and so when we talk about what made Shuffle Along so special, part of it was that it was novel, but also part of it is that it did what you alluded to before in terms of being this moment in the Harlem Renaissance where it was your Booker T. Washington meets Du Bois, you know, on stage. You had Blackface comedians and Black folks in tuxedos, not in Blackface. And they could coexist on the same stage in one production for two hours. And, and it made sense and it worked for that period of time in a way that was sort of hard to replicate. Um, could you talk about kind of the, the afterlives of this show? There were several kind of different updated versions of Shuffle Along named after the, the, the years in which they premiered. And then there were also, um, you know, you mentioned the, the, the George C. Wolfe version, but there's also a musical review that used a lot of the songs. Could you kind of explain how the show was kind of repackaged in subsequent generations? Sure. So um, the first revival was Shuffle Along of 1933, which opened in 1932, because why not? Um, And so um, (laughs) that particular production was meant to be um, a reunion for all four of the creators. And I won't I won't spoil um, what exactly happened there, but all four of the creators um, did not you know, we're not on stage in that production. And so um, it did not do very well. The book was different. The score was different. And ultimately it, it went on tour. It went on a great national tour, frankly, just out of necessity. They, they had spent all this money on the production. And so they just worked like hell to recoup what they could. Um, to me, I think the more interesting production is the Shuffle Along of 1952, which was set to star Pearl Bailey. and she quit the show um, and made quite a, a, a show of it by because it did still have antebellum humor in it in 1952. And she said that she wasn't going to do that on stage and she wasn't going to play up to any stereotypes. And she, she really kind of discouraged people from seeing the show. Um, I'm giving a simplistic version of it. There were a whole lot of other things that went, beautifully wrong with that show. I mean, I, I got a lot of glee with writing that section of the book <laughs> just because not that I, not that I was happy that things went wrong, but you know, it's just, it's nice to write about a train wreck every once in a while. You know? <laughs> just, um, so that production only ran for four performances on Broadway. I wow. mean, isn't that something Four. Yeah. Um, and so there were attempts at a Shuffle Along Vegas show and uh, films and things like that. They just never materialized. But then in the 70s, there was a musical review called Yubi, which celebrated the music of Yubi Blake. Um, so it included, I think, five or six songs from Shuffle Along and some from the Chocolate Dandies and some of his other productions. Um, and actually, what I think is amazing is all four creators of Shuffle Along actually were given... Uh, actually won a Tony Award nomination for for that review. UB Blake, Blake was still alive at the time. Um, and so he actually got his first and only Tony Award nomination for music that he had written, you know, 50 years earlier, uh, which was just amazing at that point. And, um, and then, of course, there was the George C. Wolfe production, which really was 
a sort of uh, backstage drama, I will say, of the creation of Shuffle Along. Um, there was very little of the actual source material in Wolf's production. Um, I, you know, it, it it's none of those productions were Shuffle Along of 1921. And I think there's something really telling in that, that even in 1933, there was a sense that they could not do the same show on stage, often for different reasons. Um, and so I, I, I think that's really fascinating that no one has seen the original Shuffle Along after it closed in 1923. There's something kind of... Um, uh, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, I get almost chills just thinking about this seminal piece of musical theater that no, literally no one has seen on stage in any, in any, uh, in its original form in 98 years. Yeah. You write about a, an interesting exchange between a producer who wanted to do a concert version of Shuffle Along and the great playwright August Wilson. Could you tell us a little bit about that exchange and why you wanted to include it in the book? Yes, this is one of those exchanges that added to the length of the book, but I thought it was so incredibly important. Absolutely. Um, in um, New York City Center wanted to do, um, for their encores, they wanted to do a concert version of the original Shuffle Along in, I believe it was, uh, don't quote me on this, but I believe it was, two, I mean, don't, you know, don't hold me to this, I guess I'll say, but I believe it was 2001 or 2002. And... Um, Jack Vertle, who was the artistic director at the time, longstanding, um, reached out to August Wilson with concerns and said, you know, our intention would be to celebrate the works of these great artists and creators. And yet I also fear that the very folks that we are looking to celebrate would be offended by this production being staged, you know, what should I do? And August Wilson, I thought, had such a, a smart take where he said, you know, there is an importance in having white folks have to sit in the discomfort of watching this show because it will serve as a reminder of what Black folks had to do and still often have to do to gain acceptance in primarily white spaces. And so it's easy to say, now this is me saying this, I'm, I'm editorializing here, but it's easy to say civil rights movement was such a long time ago. You know, Barack Obama was two presidents ago. You know, we're in a post-racial world now. I don't know if anyone still believes that. Um, you know, <laughs> there's, you know, but... Slavery was such a long time ago. You know, U.B. Blake's parents were both slaves, you know, and U.B. Blake, as I just said a moment ago, was still alive and, and gaining Tony Award nominations in the 1970s. I mean, you know, these things are not in the so distant past. They are part of of recent memory, you know. Um, yeah. And so... August Wilson said, you know, there is there is importance in reminding people that it was not 300 years ago, but it was inside of 100 years ago at that point in time. And ultimately, I think what the tragedy, well, I shouldn't say tragedy, but what I think is very um, 
interesting and telling is that that production was never staged. Mm-hmm. I don't know the reason for that, but I I think it's kind of easy to surmise why it wasn't. Frankly, I think for the same reason that there's very little blackface and original source material in George C. Wolf's Shuffle Along in 2016. Um, and I, I, I think there's value in what August Wilson um, had to say. You know, look, I, far be it from me to have to pat August Wilson on the head and say, you know, <laughs> um, you know but I, I think really there is value in, in what he had to say there. Um, brilliant as usual. I wonder, after working for so long on this, you know, quite quite long and detailed book, do you uh, do you still like put on the music from Shuffle Along when you're, I don't know, doing the dishes or whatever? <laughs> um, I I can say, you know, um, so Footnotes is the fifth book that I've written, and um, I usually I will confess that usually by the time the book is out, I'm, I'm over the subject. Like I've lived with it for such a long time that I just, I want to move on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. Um, That's not the case with this book. You know, I, I really feel um, number one, I think the music is great, you know, from shuffle along. I mean, I will even say, I think a lot of the comedy is really um, clever, you know, you know, the offensive material aside, I don't mean to dismiss it or minimize it, but it's, it's clever, you know, look, I mean, there's, you know, I mean, imagine like if someone insulted you for whatever reason, like there are lazy insults and there are really, you know, good insults that still hurt because they're insults, but you're like, you know, damn, that was a good one, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, um, so the, the writing of Shuffle Along, I think was, was really clever. And so I, I do still listen to it actually. Um, and I, I hope, I hope I never lose that. You know, I, I don't, I feel such a great responsibility to try and amplify these artists. And it was really important for me, not just to focus on, you know, Noble Sissel, Yubi Blake, Floyd Oye Miller, and Aubrey Lyles, but also I tried whenever I felt it was appropriate to name check other artists, other performers, other dancers, other musicians, people that had staged competing shows, people that were um, influenced by these artists and who influenced these artists. I just wanted the book to really be a celebration of all of these Black performers that have sort of been denied their due or forgotten over the last century. And um, yeah, keep keep playing uh, Shuffle Along, play it nice and loud. <laughs> You mentioned, uh, you know, when you finish a book wanting to move on to the next project. Do you know what your next project is? Um, I do. I Yeah, I do. <laughs> Would you want to share it with our audience? It's totally fine if you don't. But, uh... Oh, I, I um, you know what I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm not going to, but I'm going to tell you why. Because I actually, um, I thought I knew for a long time. And so I actually started to kind of, you know, in interviews sort of allude to what it was going to be, but I, I think it's going to, I think I'm going to go in a different direction. So now I'm just going to not say, because I don't want to be that person that, that says it's going to be X and it ends up being, you know, Y. So, <laughs> so sure, I'm, gonna, sure. I'm going to let it, uh, you know, once the dust settles on it, I'll, I'll be able to speak freely about it. Well, if it does end up being, you know, related to the field of performing arts, we'd love to have you back on the program. Oh, I'd love to be back. I, you know, I, I look, I will say 
I love reading about and writing about entertainment. I love theater. I, I direct theater. I've, I've directed theater for, oh boy, since 2003, actually. And so for quite some time at this point. And um, I, I think, you know, I wish there were more people writing theater histories, writing um, theater memoirs, you know, telling these stories. And so I love that you're dedicating yourself to amplifying these books and these works because um, there should be more of it. And I'm, I'm just so glad that Footnotes gets to be a contribution to um, that important history. Well, thank you so much. I, I should let you go, but, uh, but, but it was a real pleasure having you on New Books and Performing Arts, Cassine. Thank you so much for having me on. A real pleasure.